if you had any questions about anything that you saw or heard that, that night, you can come and talk to me about it. Um, also, I wanted to um, remind everybody that we are taking names for the nomination committee. So you give us a name, we put it on a ballot, and in a couple weeks, you guys will vote on who's going to be on this committee. So don't forget to give me those names. Whatever name you give me, it's going on the ballot. Uh, just make sure you've talked to the person who you're asking to have their name. So they're not surprised they show up and they're being voted on. Uh, we don't want that to be a surprise to them the day of. So you got a couple more weeks to do that. Don't forget, give me names. Not, or not just me, any elder or deacon, we'll get them all together on the piece of paper. All right, um, we're in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Hey, Bethany. Bethany is a friend from college. She was at Eyesight, the, the original, in the bar. She's one of the few that have been at the bar for Eyesight. And she knew me when I was 18. Yeah. It's even funnier than you can imagine. And knows my wife, too. Um, she went to college with us. We've carried around, actually, paintings of hers. She was one of the first ones to paint in some of our worship service. We carried around your paintings for a long time. Um, I think we still have some somewhere, I think in my basement. But um, if you want to know about the more, it's hard to believe, there's a more awkward version of me. <laughs> Bethany knew that version very well. Um, we're in Revelation 12 and 13. I'm going to read this whole thing. It's two chapters. Um, I know that sounds huge, but there's a drama here, and you kind of just need to hear the whole thing. I was trying to figure out what pieces to, to cut out to get through faster, but I just like, you just got to hear all of these things. Revelation 12 and 13. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brother, brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God." They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints, to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth who will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived and was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast with the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word. God, we pray that you would pierce our hearts by the power of this word. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, that we could see Jesus. Pray, Father, that you would remove the hold of idolatry, of false comforts in our lives. 
that we would clearly see you and be able to respond to you. We thank you that you want this for us as well, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can accomplish it. We trust that you'll do that this morning with us, Lord Jesus. Amen. This is it. This is, this is the stuff. I mean, dragons and serpents and beasts. Um, got the, the mark of the beast. This is it. This is the Revelation stuff. Um, this is an interconnected great drama in the center of the book of Revelation. This is coming on the tail end of these seven trumpets that, that have been blown. And now we have these great signs that are appearing in this narrative that is giving us some hint of things that have, John has already talked about and things that John will talk about. This cosmic, colossal struggle. And John opens with this description of a woman with this crown of stars and the moon under her feet, the light of the sun. John here is doing a number of things. One, one thing is he's, he's borrowing from ancient astrology. He's borrowing the stories of the stars that are written in the skies that most Romans and people of the Roman Empire would, would believe. There's mythology about how the god Apollos was born from this divine woman named Leto. And the Roman Empire takes up this story and will actually use a, a version of this story to stamp its own authority on the world. And so they'll present the empire, the emperor as shining with the light from this light that this divine woman had. But John's story, of course, is, is, is slightly and importantly different in the way that he tells it. And what he sees, he sees this woman that he gives us clear indication of who or what she is by both the description that is around her she has 12 stars that are a crown. And for the people who grew up uh, in the church, for the people who are coming into the story of the faith of the people of the church, they understand that number 12 to be significant because it links the story of Israel, the story of the new church all together. And of course, the child that she's bearing, the, the deep travail that she's in, uh, is clearly identified at the end as Jesus. So it helps us narrow down who is this woman that is being pictured here. And it would be entirely appropriate not to just read this story in March, but to be reading it in December. There's in many ways a great Christmas story here. Uh, many people have, have read this story. Most people read this story and see this is Mary. This is Mary who represents Israel and she's going to give birth to Jesus and in I'd say it is Mary, but it's more than Mary. It's all of the, the mother Israel, mother people of God who have been carrying along and travailing and moving towards this moment when the Christ would be born. And Mary stands in the, at the head of that, in the, in the stay of that, so that she is in this long line of miraculous mothers who have given birth. And she is there to give birth to the fullness of the promise of Israel. And John will use the language of Psalm 2, that one would be born who would wield a rod of iron to govern the nations. It is Jesus that she is giving birth to, that the people of God are giving birth to. And of course, it is not just her that's in the sky. The drama is that there is a second figure in the sky. There's a dragon. 
The dragon is clearly, clearly identified for us as the devil, as Satan, the accuser. And for many people, they read Scripture and they say, well, wait a second, heaven is not where the devil should be. The devil should not be up, because remember, we've just seen this revelation of the, the heavens being opened and the Ark of the Covenant being moved into the temple. That's just what's happened previous to this. What is the dragon doing up there? Well, oftentimes in the Old Testament, when we see explicit reference to the Satan, to the accuser, guess where he is? He's in heaven. He's in the courtroom, and he is telling, he's accusing, he is whispering against the people of God so that in the book of Job, God doesn't go down to where the devil is. Satan is in the room with God. And he's telling Satan that he knows a man who will be faithful to him. In the book of Zechariah, it is Satan in the room in a vision who is accusing this figure, this prophet Joshua. So it is, in a real sense, in a biblical sense, not surprising that heaven is the place where Satan is. But there is good news in this story. Because as this woman gives birth, the dragon is finally thrown out. The dragon is thrown down from his place in the heavens and is thrown down instead to earth. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? There's just this very brief moment where Jesus is appearing in the story as the child, and he just moves like down and out of the story within moments. The woman has the child, and the child is immediately whisked away to safety. And where does he go? The text says that he goes up to the throne to be enthroned, to be seated. Because the story, this drama, is, is focusing on what this dragon will do to pursue and tear apart the people of God. And of course, we are reading this text, the book of Revelation, as a text addressed to those kinds of people who feel the breath of the dragon on their backs. These people read this story And they hear the news that the dragon has come to earth. He's wiped the stars out of the sky. And he is pursuing them to their death. And they say, yeah, we feel it. We know it to be true. But of course, what happens to the people of God in the story? What happens to the woman? She's rescued out to the wilderness. And the the language of her being given great wings to flee into the wilderness is, is taken out of the book of Exodus, where God says that he carried his people on his wings into the wilderness. And so it's almost unsurprising that when the serpent sends out water to go try to drown this woman, the woman is saved and carried into the wilderness, just as the people of God were trapped against the great sea, and they were rescued through the waters and taken to the wilderness and kept in safety there. But then the dragon is furious. He is not satisfied. He wants to ruin and to wreck all that God wants to do in the world. So he stands in this in-between space, the land and the seas, and he summons his own beasts And in these beastly images, one that comes from the sea and one comes from the land, he blends, John blends together some imagery from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, there's these four beasts, a leopard, lion, a bear, and this mysterious fourth beast. And here we have a beast that blends all those characteristics together. And it's the mega beast of beasts, 
that Daniel has alluded to before, rising out of the sea, invested with all kinds of power and authority. He is one that has been wounded, but has overcome. In biblical terminology in the Old Testament, it is often the Gentiles that are referred to as the seas, because the sea is a place of chaos and darkness. So seas often represent the Gentiles. And this beast rises up with power from the place of the Gentiles and is given authority and political power to persecute and to kill. And he does that. You see that in Revelation 13. He has the power to kill the people of God. And it it can be tempting to try to break down like every piece of this imagery, but what John is, is clearly symbolizing in this one and the next is this person has many crowns, seven and tens and crowns everywhere. There's horns, which always symbolize power. What you are meant to see in the teeth of this mega beast is they have all of the political power that you can imagine. And they rise from the Gentiles to crush the people of God. What is this thing that they've been wounded and yet live. They have in some sense presented themselves in this mythology to the people as a kind of faux alternative to Jesus. They are a quasi-resurrected one. And the people would be familiar with this kind of story because it seemed that Rome had been vanquished when the Caesar was killed, when Julius Caesar was destroyed. But out of that wounding, the Caesarhood just kept right on going. And the whole world stood in awe of the great power of Rome. Who can stand against this beast? This is not the only beast that John is reckoning with, that the people of God are reckoning with. There's a second beast that comes from the land. And the land, the language of the land, is usually almost always referring to Israel. And this beast has its own characteristics. It has its own horns, just like the land that we've already come to know as Jesus. It is another falsehood. It's another mockery of Jesus. And instead of playing the part of political power, they are bearing all the trappings of religious power. They are the people who have stood in the place of Israel and conspired with Rome which we as readers of the Gospels are familiar with. We've seen that it was was an alliance between Rome and Jerusalem that crucified Jesus. And certainly the people of of John's day would have been familiar with the people of Jerusalem conspiring with Rome to crush the church. And they have these demonstrations of power, the second land beast. They can call down fire like prophets of old, And they speak with the voice of the dragon. It is the dragon's voice that rings out from this false lamb's voice. And all the people are are trampled underneath the power of these two beasts at the direction of the dragon. And the people must be marked on the hand and on the forehead, which is, of course, the same place that many people in Israel would have carried their copies of Torah on their hand and on their forehead. But this time they've been marked inappropriately 
They carry this number, 666, which sort of rings out in our literary imagination. Much ink has been spilled of what this number means. How do I make sure that I don't get that whatever microchip planted in my hand and my forehead? That's probably what it is, or a tattoo of some kind. Maybe it's my credit card because I hold that. I can't buy things without my credit card. Or it's this person because their letters add up to this thing. It is a, a common understanding to read this symbol, this 666, and say this is adds up to Nero, uh, the Neronic emperor. If you translate his name from Hebrew back to Greek, it adds up to 666. That's a very common interpretation, but I'd, I'd give you another one. I'll give you another one that was new to me. There's only one other place in the Bible where this number is brought out. 666. And it is a, is a troubling incident of an Israelite king who has had his heart swept away by the powers of idolatry and the power of wealth. In 1 Kings chapter 10, there's just this little line. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Israelite kings were warned against the accrual of wealth, the building of power, and of idolatry. And Solomon is the place where the monarchy slides exactly in to what God has warned them of. It is his yearly tribute that is 666 talents of gold. And we'll later be told he is the man who has with a thousand wives and idols being brought into the household of God. Whether this is Nero or Solomon or something else, the message in these two beasts is being put forward to the people of God. We're told at the end of verse 10 of 13, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. The trouble when we read this great drama oftentimes is that our eyes are caught so much by these horrible, ghastly, terrifying figures and these signs that are put on people's hands and people's foreheads. We are drawn to the enemy and all of his bizarre and grotesque details, wanting to know every ounce of who this was or could be or will be. But the people who read this and heard this for the first time, they are being called to a life of endurance and faithfulness. Their eye is not meant to be caught by the dragon. Their eye is meant to be caught by the lamb. And in this whole story, this whole narrative of Revelation and all of its many overlapping and recapitulating visions, it is not the enemies of God who take center stage. It is the Lamb of God. Jesus here is almost just a whisper through the text. 
He is is born of the people of God and takes the throne. He is is here and gone. And and for the people who are being persecuted, who are about to be persecuted, it it probably feels that way. It, It feels like Jesus was just here for a moment and now he's gone. And now all we have left to reckon with is the beasts, are the beasts from the land and the sea. The powers of Rome, the corrupted powers of Jerusalem, it can feel that way to them too. That they might be tempted to only see the teeth of the enemy. But that is not what we have read thus far. And it is certainly not what we will read to the end. And it is not the point of this narrative in 12 or 13. It is always and only the Lamb who will take center stage. But we are being warned here. There is real warning. The people here are being warned. They're not being told the beasts are incomprehensibly powerful and will triumph. They are being told the beasts are powerful and you should watch out. They don't own you. They don't own you. But they are powerful and you should watch out. What what is the sea beast warning us of? Well, we might not be facing the Roman Empire wielding a sword right above our necks. In our place, in our time, that is not how we experience the beast that arises from the sea. Not in this place. Our brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world definitely do. But when we see the beast that rise from the sea, what our temptation is, is to ally ourselves with that beast. To say that what we truly need is the power that that beast wields. We need the horns of his power. We need the crowns of his power. What we need is the kind of power that can smash and pulverize our enemies. And we can get by with ignoring the blasphemous names on his forehead. We can get by with the the devilish origination of his power. But he can give us what we want because he has the power. And what Revelation is unveiling for us, because that's what Revelation is, it's unveiling, is that power is not going to protect you. That power is not meant for your good. That power will crush you and rip you apart because it hates you and will consume you. That power is not to be your salvation. And what of the beast that arises from the land? The power of religious manipulation. The power of idolatry. And that beast is also tempting to follow. You you may not be as afraid of the power that it wields, because it's really just pointing to the, the power of the other beast, the power of the dragon, but goodness gracious, it's confusing Because here is a lamb, an alternative lamb with its own horns of of power. Here's a lamb that can work its own miracles, that can do the same things the prophets do. But it's false. It's bent towards its own end. It is still establishing an alternative kingdom. 
And it is not harmless to get in bed with this beast. It is not harmless to wander away and to whisper, to the, listen to the whisperings of the dragon's voice because it's, it's better, it's more favorable, it's more comfortable to you, it's telling you the way that you can be wealthy and happy and secure. It's not better. But it instead, it is the lure, it is the bait that, that captured Solomon's own heart. It is tempting to seize, to reach for the gold and to not see the hook that's lying in the piles of wealth that will drag you in to the net of the dragon. It is so tempting. So we may not live in a place where Jerusalem wields a sword conspiring with a Rome-bearing sword that is about to crush us in the same kind of persecution that this early church faced But it is important to understand that John would certainly affirm, Scripture would certainly affirm, that even if the beasts look different in your era, the beasts are still present. That even if the dragon is not looking the same way to you and I as it has to our brothers and sisters in various places and times through history, the dragon is still not gone. The dragon is still not gone. And we'll use the same avenues to tempt and to crush you and I. The appeal to power, the appeal to some other kind of alternative variation that might be just close enough to Jesus, but moving in just far enough away. The appeal to our want for gold, for commerce, for comfort. That dragon, he is ancient, but he's not all that creative. He has found bait that works. And saints of God, if you are to endure, have nothing to do with the beasts. Do not get in bed with the beasts because it is only the lamb who must be center stage. It is Important here to see what is happening, see through the imagery of of how Jesus is being born of Mary, being born of the people of God, and reaching his exaltation. It is John's other writing that will help us see what has gone on in that silent moment. Because in the Gospel of John, what John will repeatedly tell us is that Jesus is moving in his life towards exaltation, towards enthronement. And Jesus is reaching his enthronement steadily, pace by pace, and he reaches the peak of his enthronement on the cross. John does not say that after the cross, then Jesus will be enthroned. He uses the language of enthronement to say that when Jesus is crucified, there he is enthroned. There the Lamb of God is displayed in all of his glory. And so we who are stalked by the dragon and by these beasts, if we are ultimately after our own safety and our own comfort, we are walking away from the road that Jesus walked. Because Jesus is demonstrating in himself that his exaltation is his, his, his flogging, is his bleeding, is his crucifying, is his dying. And to a martyr people, this is the good news. 
that this Jesus was enthroned in his death and in his resurrection so that he, the one, the martyr in chief, the first witness, our brother, did you hear how the people are described? The other faithful children that the mother will bear. That's, that's us. Our brother is enthroned. He is the victorious one. He is the conquering one. So when he just whisks in and out of the story, he's actually dominating the story, watching over the story, ruling over the story from his place of power that he has won for himself and his obedience even to the point of death. So that death itself is no longer the determinative enemy in our lives. So the chief thing that the beasts can wield over the head of the people of God, your death, your suffering is stripped and robbed of its power. Because the one who was sought after to be killed, to suffer and died, he was already enthroned through his death and suffering. We are a people who are not called to be hungry after panting after, longing for the attractions of the beast. We are a people who are called to follow the child. To follow him on the way of suffering, knowing that he has already overcome by the power of his own suffering. We are called to endurance because we look to Jesus and say that he has endured. He faced the test and the trial, the opposition, all the red fangs of the dragon, and he has overcome their ripping. And if we are going where he is going, then we are ultimately safe. The confession of the martyrs is what is invited to be our confession. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Ultimately, the dragon that seeks to destroy you has been unseated from the place where he might do his worst to you. The worst is not death in the book of Revelation. Lots of people die. Even the lamb has died. The worst is what the dragon can do to you as the accuser. And what Revelation chapter 12 is showing you and I is that God has grabbed the dragon by the throat and thrown him down. Satan, the accuser, is no longer allowed in the courtroom to list your faults and failures before God. The one that you and I might be tempted to follow is ultimately the one that behind our back or in the courtroom would tell the great judge, you should cast them down. You should cast them aside. And Revelation 12 says, because of the work of the child, the voice of the dragon is silenced against you which is good news. Because if you are like me, it is tempting to sit here at the end of Revelation chapter 13 and say, I have been tempted by the beast from the seas, and the beast from the land, 
I have been tempted to wear that mark on my own, my own hand, on my own forehead, to set my heart on all the gold of this world. And the truth is that if somebody was going to give an accurate description of my life, they would have plenty of ammo for accusation. But the great victory of God is that in the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, God has put his mouth over the lizard and closed it and said he will make the determination and the judgment without the help of the accuser. And the verdict has been rendered. When Jesus is whisked to the throne, he carries his people with him. If you know this morning that you have been tempted, that you have been subject to the powers of power and wealth and idolatry, Jesus is standing before you as your all-conquering hero. Not to promise you that you'll be safe. Not to promise you that the blows of those beasts will never fall on you. But to promise you that no matter where you go, if you follow Jesus, none of them will crush you. And his word over your life is final. No accusation wielded against you, even if true, will be entered into the evidence. But instead, the verdict is rendered that you are forgiven and you are free. You are free in a way that the one who can kill the body can never touch. Jesus said, it is, makes no sense to be afraid of the one who can only kill the body. Instead, kill the one, fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. And Jesus tells you in his own life that in him you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Romans 12 and 13 is not about the many beasts for you to be afraid of. Romans 12 and 13 is a message that you have nothing to fear when you follow Jesus. You have nothing to fear in Him. You don't have to be afraid of Him that when you come and bring Him all the record of all your stuff, that He will agree with you and let you carry on the, the legacy of the dragon and carry on the legacy of the accuser and agree with the language of the accuser. You don't have to be afraid because He shouts you down in your confession and says, you are forgiven and free. I don't care how long the list is of the things that, that bring you shame, the things that imprison you, of your many betrayals. You're going over to the beast from the land or the beast from the sea and wanting to be friends, to be partners with them. If you come to Jesus, the lamb who was slain, you are forgiven and you are free. He will rule with a rod of iron to smash the enemies of His people. You are called to endure in faithfulness because you are not living, living under the cloud of fear anymore. You don't have anything to fear from God, therefore you don't have anything to fear from anyone. No thing, no person, no power can touch you. 
and ultimately claim you the way that the Lamb of God has set his claim on you. You are called this morning to confidence in him. And if you're sitting here this morning and saying, I have put my confidence and trust in a lot of things, but none of them Jesus. This morning is your day to leave it aside. Whatever your alternative confidence is, it will fail you and ultimately crush you. And God is offering to you freedom. If you have been ultimately most confident in your relationships, in your moral purity, in your goodness compared to that person or this person, in your finances, in your intelligence, in, the, in your position in society, in the color of your skin, the power that you wield. Leave it aside. The Lamb stands before you, inviting you to place all your hopes on Him. All those other crowns that you've bent the knee to, they're false. And they'll fail you and they will destroy you. And if you're here today, and you know that, you've already said that, you've already confessed it, but in the past day, or week, or month, or year, or decade, you have run a long way away from Jesus. And you are sitting here saying, I should know better, I do know better, and yet I've run so far from him. The Lamb of God has not disappeared from your story any more than he has disappeared from this one. And he still sits on the throne, ruling in kindness and mercy towards you. And if you would today, today, say, I am so sorry and sick of the way that my life has been for the past day, week, month, lifetime, you would find before you a God who would present himself as broken wide open for you and who still loves you and who still welcomes you home. The beasts do not have to terrify you anymore. There is nothing to fear in Jesus. You can endure because he has won on your behalf. I would encourage you, if you hear his voice this morning, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. But instead, today, now, respond to him. And turn to him and let him carry you, now and always, even to the other side of the grave, forever and ever. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would speak to to our hearts now. I ask God for those who, who have heard your voice, have heard it in the night, have heard it 
and unexpected moments in their days. That they would now hear your voice clearly. Father, for all of those who are discomforted by your word, I pray that you would complete the picture, that they might find their comfort only in you. For everyone that is hearing your voice this morning, I pray that you would help them to respond. Help them to turn to you with sincerity and simplicity. Say, Jesus, I need you. Come help me. Come rescue me from the dragon. Father, I pray that our hearts would be inflamed with love for you. That we would not be addicted to the trappings of power, wealth, or idolatry to a kind of spirituality that has room for all kinds of things except you. Father, we thank you for your invasion. We thank you that your rescue is, is sure. It is assured for us. Lord Jesus, I pray that in your mercy we would be a people who more and more value what you have done for us more than the things of this world or the things that the world can offer us or can threaten us with. Let our loyalty be fixed on you because we have first seen your great loyalty and love for your people. Thank you that you came for people like us, incompetent, hit-and-miss followers like us, You are the one, we are the the ones you came to save. You silenced the accuser for us. Lord Jesus, there's no one like you. Help us to see it more clearly and believe it more truly. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Amen.